Well, three weeks ago, uh, we looked at, uh, together, at the first nine verses of the Old Testament book of Joshua, uh, chapter 1. And if you remember there, we, we saw that Moses, the leader of Israel, had died, and his successor, Joshua, was told by God to go take that land that God had promised them. And if you remember, that was quite a daunting thing for Joshua to face because many reasons. For one, the land was filled with violent, really deviant paganism. Scary. But then also Moses had really big shoes to fill, right? Um, And yet God told him in that passage, be strong and courageous. And In that passage, we saw that God gave him what he needed to be strong and courageous. If you remember, um, we said that, he says, be strong and courageous, and here's where your strength and courage are going to come from. They're going to come from the certainty of God's promises and the centrality of God's precepts, his word, and the strength and courage would come from the comfort of God's presence. So for today, we're actually just going to go to the next set of verses in that chapter in chapter 1, and we're going to see how obedience is modeled for us. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll begin thinking through this. Father, I praise you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has freed us from the chains of sin, the bondage of being in Adam, and for those of your children who have you have adopted through faith in Jesus Christ, we can now say we are free. We are free, able to be, to turn from fear and to have strength and courage. I ask for your help this morning as we look at a a passage that maybe we would quickly read over and go on to the next chapter. I pray that you would help us to see that you have something for us in all of your word. Would you give us encouragement and conviction to see what you want us to see this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I said this passage, I think we're going to see that obedience is all over it, but obedience is not something we like to talk about, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's not something fun because we're natural-born rebels, right? Um, but obedience that God calls us to is not a blind obedience, Um, God does not uh, tell us to just obey because I said so. He can because he's king, right? But he wants our obedience to be motivated by a purpose. He wants it to be constrained by the right purposes. And true obedience, true obedience doesn't debate. True obedience doesn't delay. Um, True obedience doesn't wait for the right moment. True obedience acts. And this passage models for us what willing obedience looks like given and driven by the right purposes. So let's read together Joshua chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days... You are to pass over this Jordan to go in, 
to take possession of the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest, and you will give, and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So that's an interesting passage. I think it is one of those kind of passages that we just read and go to the next passage, right? Um, and I know as a preacher, I look at that and I'm like, oh, Lord, what, what do you have for us in here? But there's much. There is much for us. I think you could sum up this passage as purpose-driven obedience. Purpose-driven obedience. And as we dig into it, you're going to see three drivers for biblical obedience, three motivators for biblical obedience. And I want to say that the three drivers that we see in this passage, the three motivators for obedience, they're not all-encompassing. There are other reasons for biblical obedience. For instance, Jesus is king. He is the Lord. God's the creator. I'm a creature. Those are reasons for obeying. But there are three specific ones, three different ones that we'll see in this passage that I think are helpful. And I'll just give them to you right away. We're going to see obedience driven by the promise of God. We're going to see obedience driven by commitment. And we're going to see obedience driven by the presence of God. So let's first look at that, that first one, obedience driven by the promise of God. It's really interesting. So last week, or the three, four weeks ago when I preached, verses 1 through 9... There you go. Somebody's looking for that. <laughs> the present. I'll come back to it. So, <laughs> verses one through nine, God's talking to Joshua. He says, Go take the land, go do this. Verse 10, we see Joshua acting immediately. It doesn't say years later he obeyed. What he does this right away. He goes right from verse nine, be strong and courageous, go. And verse 10, Joshua goes. Joshua goes to the leaders and says, get ready, get your stuff together, we're going to go do this. So what drives this immediate obedience, though? Like, we need to think about what would make Joshua obey right away. Clearly, it's going to be those things we talked about last, last time, the, the presence of God, the precepts of God. But I think one particular thing is made evident in this text And that's the promise of God, and particularly the promise of the gift of land. Okay, that's that's really interesting. 
Um, not maybe to us, because we don't get like these promises to be given land to go take. Um, but you need to know that the book of Joshua happens in real history. This is not a made-up story. And so many of the stories that happen in the book of Joshua, archaeologists have found evidence for. This is truth. This is real history that we're reading about. And the book of Joshua is dated about 1400 B.C. That means 1400 years before Jesus even came. But 600 years before that, 2000 B.C., God speaks to Abraham and says, I'm going to give you land. I promise to give you land. Let's look at that real quick. Oh, that's really tiny. So um, I'm going to, over here in this upper right-hand corner, this is from Genesis 15. If you're taking notes, Genesis 15, verses 18 through 20. Um, God is speaking to Abraham, and this is that promise that he's talking about, specific geographic dimensions of the land he promises to give Abraham. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he lists the tribes, the people groups that lie in between that. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. If you read through the rest of the book of Joshua, you see them taking, attacking, taking the land of those people. And it's interesting, the land stretches. This is the river Euphrates, and I've highlighted modern countries. So this is Syria, and the river Euphrates runs from here all the way down to the Gulf. And then here's the Nile in Egypt. Modern-day Israel's right here, Lebanon's here, Jordan's here. So God is saying in that passage right here, from this area here, and some people debate that it actually runs all the way to here, but it's clear to me that it's at least from here to here, down to the Nile, everything in there, God promised in the year approximately 2000 BC to Abraham, I'm going to give you that land. Now, another question that should come into your mind as a person who lives 4,000 years removed from that time, why is that important to us? Why is that, like, why do we care? about that. Well, one, it's in God's Word. So if it's in God's Word, you should care, because it's God's Word to us, right? Um, but I would say, give you, I want to give you just a few reasons. Why does this matter about the promised land? I'd say first, it's foremostly important because of the fame of God's name, okay? Just like Sam pointed out last week, the fear of the Lord is a theme through the, the, old, the whole Bible. The fame of God's name is also a theme you're going to see through the entire Bible. And it literally means his name and also the reputation of his name. My question, did you know that God actually has a name? It's not just God. He actually has a name. And anytime you see in your Bible, all caps, Lord, or like in your King James, sometimes it'll say Jehovah. The Hebrew underneath that is Yahweh, Yahweh. That's the name that God gave to Moses when he was explaining the covenant to him in the wilderness. 
Sometimes it's translated as I am. But you'll hear me say Yahweh through this, path, through this message this morning. That's God's name for himself. Well, if you noticed when we were reading through our passage, it says that capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh's name 10 times. That tells us that there's something really important about Yahweh connected to this promise of land. The real question is like, okay, how is it that Yahweh is connected to land promises? Well, it's connected to the land, first of all, because Yahweh rules over all creation, and He can declare what is His. He has the right as the owner to give to some and to take from others because He's God. He can do that. And this giving of the promised land is connected to the God that Israel worshipped by name, Yahweh. So this may not be connecting to you, but all of those different tribes, the Cabanites, all the Ites, (laughs) they all had their own God that they worshipped. But they all knew the name of the gods next door. There was Baal, there was Molech, there was Asherah, there were several of these gods. And like these folks know who theirs were. Well, it's very clear as you read through Deuteronomy and through Joshua that all of these folks knew who Yahweh was. They had heard about how he had brought the people of Israel out of Egypt with a strong, mighty arm, like moved the Red Sea. So all of these folks know who Yahweh is. And that's one of the reasons why this is very important. The point is that the promise of God is dry, for land is driving Joshua to obey immediately because this promised land is connected to the fame of Yahweh. If Yahweh, who says, I'm going to give you this land, doesn't do it, well, he's not so famous. He's not so glorious. He's a God who says, I'm going to do this, and then doesn't do it. Hmm, not so sure I'm interested in that. And that's another reason why I think this is really connected here. The promised land to Yahweh is it's dependent on his trustworthiness. Is this a God we can count on? I mean, think about it. He promised to Abraham 600 years before this happened. He says to Abraham, it'd be like me saying to Dave, Dave, I'm going to give you this. And 600 years later, I still haven't given him something that I said I would do. Well, that's really interesting. Does that mean to us that God is not trustworthy? Well, not according to Joshua, because apparently he still believed that Abraham was somehow alive with God and would keep that promise because he repeats that promise to give him all of this. He repeats it to Isaac the son of Abraham. He repeats it to Jacob, the son of Isaac. He repeats it to Joseph, the son of Jacob. And he repeats it to Moses, and he repeats it to Joshua and all of Israel. So God's saying, I'm going to give you this land. I promise. I promise. So his trustworthiness is on the line. Is this a God we can trust? That's the real question. And as a side note for you and I, this is really important because God has made a promise to us that He's not yet fulfilled, and that is that He's coming back. We're still sitting right here today, 
And Jesus has said, I am coming back. And we know when God makes promises, like to send them a, a give them promised land, we're going to see that being starting to be fulfilled. And he promises to send a Messiah. We kept those promises. Well, the promise that he's made to us to sin, that Jesus is coming back, we can believe, we can hold on to, because he's kept these other promises. That's just a side note. So I said this passage is about obedience. What's the command to obey that Joshua is being told here in the first few verses there? Well, it's to prepare. It's to prepare for battle. He says, to, to Joshua goes to the officers and says, get ready. Get your stuff, get provisions, because we're about to go into battle. And it's a, it's a military kind of preparation, but it's also a spiritual preparation. The reason I know that is because the repetition of the covenant name of Yahweh over and over in this passage and rehearsing things that has happened tells us that this is spiritual preparation for battle. So the obedience is go, prepare, do they obey? They do. They go and prepare. And the question for us is, what about us? What are we told to prepare for? Are we told to prepare for battle? Mm-hmm. Ephesians 6.13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. That whole Ephesians 6, that last half is about us preparing for battle. God tells us to obey Him in preparing for battle. Well, what does that look like for you and me? How, what does that mean? If I say to you, you need to prepare for spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. Well, personally, I mean, as an individual, it must mean growth in prayer. Growth in prayer. I know in my own life, I need to prepare for spiritual battle by growing in my prayer life. Because to the extent that I'm not praying... I'm telling God, I got this battle. I don't need you. I got it. If I'm not praying and asking for help, I'm trying to do it on my own. And prayer is about me going to God and saying, I can't do this. I need you. So to the extent that we're not praying about things, to that same extent you're telling God, I got it. That's not good. So God's telling us, prepare for battle by growing in your preparation for battle in your own prayer life. But there's other ways we need to be able to prepare ourselves. Scripture, being in it on a daily basis, meditating on it, praying through it. But also think about the role that God puts you in. If you're a man here who's a husband and a father, God's told you to help your family and your wife to prepare for spiritual battle. It's your responsibility. It's my responsibility as a husband and a father to help prepare them for spiritual warfare. And I have to do that formally, like think through, there should be times when I sit them down and I teach them the Bible in the home, but also informal times, like when there's hard things going on in their life, they come over a bad day of school, I need to point them to Jesus. That's me helping them prepare them for future spiritual battle. The question is, is our obedience, the things that God has told us to do, 
as, or as immediate as Joshua's? Are we just kind of, okay, I'll get to that, God. I'll, I'll do that sometime. We are called to, to be immediately obeying. Joshua's obedience was driven by the promise of God. I'm going to give you this. And Joshua believed him and obeyed. The second driver we're going to see here is obedience driven by commitment. If you look at that passage, that verse 12, it's kind of strange to us. To the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the word of Moses, and he goes on talking about that. What, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is he's referring back to something that happened in Israel's history. When he says Moses, remember this is what Moses talked about? And he's talking to certain tribes of Israel. He's actually talking about a story that takes place in Numbers 32. So for us to understand this passage, we actually have to go back to Numbers 32 to understand what is this that we're talking about. So I want to read to you from Numbers 32. And I've just got a few verses. It's a long chapter. So I've just picked the ones that help us understand what is Joshua referring to? What's the story? Now the people of Reuben, that's one of the tribes of Israel, and the people of Gad, another tribe of Israel, had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and we're going to see on a map where that is in a second. And behold, the place was a place for livestock. It was a good place for them to stay. But you've got to understand, it's not on the other side of the Jordan where everybody focused that this is where God said, we're going to give you this land. It's a different land. And they said to Moses, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Don't take us across the Jordan. Now, and then Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you discourage your, the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? And I jumped to verse 20, but that whole section in between 6 and 20, Moses is mad because it appears to him that this, these tribes of Israel are just wanting to back off. We're, we like it here. We just want to stay here. You guys go do your thing. And Moses thinks it's not loyalty. They're not going to help the rest of Israel take the promise of God, the promised land. And they come back and they say to him, they come back and say to Moses, no, 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 that's not what we're saying. We, we want to live here, but we promise we're going to help when it comes time to cross into Jordan and fight, we will help them. Moses is like, okay, okay, but you have to do that. For instance, he says, so Moses said to them, if you will do this, in other words, if you'll come help your brothers, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he's driven out his enemies before him and the land is subdued before the Lord, then after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. So do you get the picture of what happened there? Let me show you. This is the area of Israel, and it's kind of mapped out in numbers. It says, okay, this tribe's going to get this portion of the land. This tribe's going to get this portion of the land. 
And down the center of the map is the River Jordan. And most of the land that they were being allotted is on this west side of the Jordan. And what the half-tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Reuben said to Moses, no, we want to stay here. What's not clear is as Israel left Egypt, they came down from the south and wandered around in this part of the wilderness. And they're about to, in the book of Joshua, cross over Jordan and go in and take out, take this land. Well, these tribes here said, we wanted to stay here. This is pretty nice here. It'll work for us pretty well. That's the idea. So Joshua has to persuade these people. They're now at that point where they're going to go in, and Joshua has to persuade them, do what you said you would do. So how does he do that? And when he does this to try to remind them about this promise that they made, he, try, he persuades them in a couple different ways. I think the first thing he does that we see is he says, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you? He's doing that on purpose because Israel, especially those tribes, all connected Moses with being the mediator between them and God. So for Joshua to say to the people, Moses said this, automatically invokes, to, tells, makes them feel like, oh man, that was super important because he was the voice of God to us. But then the second part, that reason, way I, the way I think he helped motivate them to keep their word was by reminding them of the gift that Yahweh has given them. The gift. And the text stresses <clears throat> the words gift and rest. And, and I want to show you what I mean. When you're trying to read the Bible and figure out what's the point in the text, you need to look for repeated words. Look for repeated words. And the reason I know that Joshua is stressing to them the gift of rest is because if you look for repeated words, and particularly verbs, you're going to see this concept of gift, gift, giving, providing, give, gives, 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 gives. It's all over that paragraph. And then you ask, well, what is it he's giving them? And he's giving them land, 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 but rest is tied together with land. So that's, you may be like, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> What's the point here? The, the idea of rest and connected with a place is another one of those themes that runs through the Bible all over from Genesis 1. Man, I didn't think through my, the size of my fonts today. So bear with me here. Genesis 1, what is, happens at the end of the creation? God rests. He creates this place and then he rests from his work. In Exodus 20, when the commandments are given, one of the commandments is to rest. And Israel celebrates that. Deuteronomy 5, if you look at that passage, the bringing Israel out of a place of slavery in Egypt is then connected with heading towards rest. And then at the end of the book, the book of Joshua, three times it says God gave them rest from their enemies. And if you get into the prophets, the prophets talk about the eternal kingdom being a time of rest. Rest characterizes the future kingdom. 
And then think about the New Testament. Our Lord says, come to me and I will give you rest. Right? Hebrews 4, even rest itself is linked with the promised land and salvation in itself. My point is, is that Joshua isn't trying to manipulate these tribes into obedience. He's pointing to them saying, look, God is giving you rest and your brothers don't have this rest yet. He points them to commitment. He says, why, why is this a big deal? Well, because, for instance, the unity of Israel is on the line. If you picture all those tribes all over the place, they need to be unified in order to take this land. The, the morale of Israel is at a critical juncture here. If they're going to go in and fight and take this place, they have to be unified. And Joshua calls on them, keep your word. You said, when we cross over, your kids and family will stay here, but you're going to send your fighting men to help us. We have to have that. But these Transjordan tribes, these that have lived on the east side of the Jordan, have settled comfortably. They're like, this is pretty nice. We, we wiped out our enemies here. It'd be really tempting for those tribes to say, that's their problem, right? We've got it made. It could. We've got a cush situation right now. They had to think about others. That's what Josh was trying to stir up this commitment to their word, their commitment to the Lord, their commitment to each other. While they're comfortable, already settled in the land, they are called on by Joshua here to think not about themselves, but to think about others. So this is an obedience that's driven by a commitment to others to the Lord, to their word, but to others. And the question I have for us is, how does this apply as to us as New Covenant Christians? And I'll tell you, because commitment matters. Commitment really does matter. We obey out of a commitment to the Lord and to each other. And there should be a commitment to our word. When we say something, we should stick to it. These Transjordan tribes had to think about others, right? They, and like Israel, we're united to each other by Christ. And when one part rejoices, we all rejoice. And when one suffers, we should all be suffering together, right? Well, at least we should be. My question for you today is, who do you need to think about besides yourself today? We need to be thinking about who is it, what ways, God, do you want me to come alongside others out of a commitment to the local church and even the broader church? And I don't know what that looks like specifically for each of you, but I've got a few ideas that I just want to stir up as far as ways that you can think about how does God want me to obey out of a commitment to the church. So, first of all, we support missionaries. Missionaries like these folks, Mike and Vicki Fester. They've been doing missions for longer than Matt and I have been alive. 
Seriously. Maybe just about exactly as long as Matt, because he's older than me. <laughs> how well do you know our missionaries? Do you know how to pray for them? You may not. And there's a great opportunity for you. Ask Pastor Matt, how can I get to know our missionaries better and pray for them? And I know he has a specific opportunity he's working on right now. <laughs> so, seek him out. That's one way. But another way, the family of the week. How well do you know them? Right? Do you know specifically how to pray for Gina and Teresa this week? Obviously, there's been some health issues. They've lost loved ones in the last month as well. Do you know how to pray from week to week for each other? That's commitment to one another. Just like those tribes of Reuben and Gideon, uh, uh, the, the, of Gad, those tribes were committed to each other. And that's a model of commitment and obedience that we see for our own lives. But that, I'm talking about the local church, but I think it's also good for us to get outside of ourselves and think even broader. What about the persecuted church? Um, we see persecution on the horizon for us in America, in the U.S. But for others, it's not just on the horizon. For instance, this guy, we've already talked about him today. This is Pastor Coates. Last week, he was arrested and put in jail for preaching, <laughs> for doing what we're called to do. He was obeying and he was arrested. You, how can you help them? How can you think about him? How can you help? Well, you can pray for him for sure. Pray for his church. Pray for all of them involved. But you can also give, by the way. <laughs> Go and search that up. They need a lot of legal help financially. But how about this? This guy, Ibrahim Feruzi. The beginning of this month, he was summoned from a prison sentence he had been in already for seven years for distributing Bibles. And as soon as he got summoned to this court, afterwards they rearrested him and put him back in prison. And you know what? If you ask him what it is, how you can help, here's exactly what he tells us. He says, I ask Christians to pray not for my acquittal, but for the great name of God to be glorified. What? That is an example of what I mean here by not thinking about yourself, but thinking about the fame of God's name in this world. That's what these tribes did. They stuck to their word. If you would look to the end of the book of Joshua, you would see that these Transjordan tribes stuck to their word. They helped their brothers in obedience to the command of God and they were blessed in return. And by the grace of God, we can obey, driven by commandment to help each other and to the glory of God. But as we finish this chapter up, the third driver for obedience that I see in this passage is obedience driven by the presence of God. Let me reread verses 16 to 18 for you. They... So that's talking about those Transjordan tribes. It's not talking about all Israel. Because if you think about all Israel, what they're about to say actually doesn't make a lot of sense because we know all Israel did not always obey Moses and all that they said. <laughs> all that you have commanded us, Joshua, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, 
so he will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. This is the response of those Transjordan tribes. And they declare their commitment to that promise that they made. They declare this pro- their commitment to, their, to each other, but they, here they're, they're declaring their commitment to Joshua. And Joshua stands before them as their new mediator between them and God. Now they realize that they will only have success in obeying God, taking this promised land, if he gives his presence to their mediator. That's what he there. Look, only may the Lord your God be with you. They knew that their mediator was only going to have success if the Lord God's presence, Yahweh's presence, was with them. Now, we think as Christians today about God's presence is with us because we are Christians. In the time of Israel, it didn't work like that. They had a mediator who stood between them and God. Well, we actually have a mediator as well who came and lived this life for us on our behalf. You see, Joshua points us to Christ. He doesn't do it perfectly. That's the way the Old Testament examples work. They show us this need for a Savior, and they kind of look a little bit like some of the things that the Savior, the Messiah, would do. But they're always kind of fall short. Like David's a type of Christ, but David had somebody murdered. So it's, that's the idea. Is it, shows, it shows this want for a Messiah. Well, Joshua, Jesus is our greater Joshua. He fills that up. He faced every trial and temptation as we do, yet never once sinned. He knew suffering and rejection, and all the while had the presence of God with him. Our mediator had the presence of the Spirit indwelling him as the God-man. And then that perfect, innocent man was crucified on a cross to bear the wrath of God that you and I deserve. God the Father was with His Son, the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ, and He fully obeyed for us. And now His perfect life and death are ours. And this salvation promise of God's gift to us by faith in Him is ours. My question for you is, are you trusting today in Him alone for your eternal destiny? Do you know for sure that He is yours, not because of any good that you've done, but because Jesus did all the right things for you in your place? And if you are in Him, are you obeying Him now as His adopted child? You and I were orphans. We were stranded and doomed to an eternity apart from God. And now He has rescued us and given us perfect rest in Him. So, 
I think <clears throat> as I conclude here, I wanted to show you a quote from one of the commentators that I think really summed up this passage well. He said, so Moses has died, but Yahweh has not left Israel or us as orphans. We still have God's promise, God's presence, God's word, and God's people. And that should be enough until the kingdom of God comes in power and great glory. As I think about us facing the world today and the battles that we have in front of us, it's a little bit like plodding along through the snow, that really deep snow. And if you had to walk through it, your legs get tired. I think that's a picture of us. But God's telling us in this passage, keep taking those steps, prepare for battle. He's given us marching orders. As New Testament believers, He's given us marching orders. We're called to make disciples. We're called to be salt and light. We're called to proclaim the lordship of Christ over every square inch of this universe. And we're called to do everything for the glory of God. Those are our marching orders. So go, prepare for battle. Be strong and courageous for the Lord our God is with us wherever we go. Amen? Matt, would you come and pray for us?